Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. So we've just seen the 100th running, the centenary year of Le Mans, and we're not done yet with this series of Le Mans podcast. As we count down our own top tens, and until now, our chief editor Kevin Turner has been putting these top tens together. He joins us as our first guest on the podcast today. Kev, looking forward to this bonus episode. Yeah, and I didn't have to do this 10, so I get to pick it apart instead of have someone criticise my choices, which which is good fun. We like, like to drop one or two of those in in each series, so yeah, should be good. And that top 10's been put together by our own James Newbold. Quite a responsibility to put this top 10 together. What's the top 10 you're going to bring us later in the podcast before we, uh, after we talk to our special guest today? It is the top 10 sports cars that never raced at Le Mans. A bit of a beast to put together. And there's a bit of a backstory to this, which was I did a feature on Maserati MC12 in 2021. It was a car that I sort of really liked watching growing up. And Kev suggested as a sidebar, we sort of cover off a couple of other cars that didn't race at at Le Mans and and pick some of the the best ones out for an online feature, which took me about two years to get around to writing in between a house move and another child being born and other things going on. So, um, yeah. Inconsequential, you know, life stuff getting in the way. (laughs) Uh, Just just small things like producing humans and and changing where you live. Uh, And our special guest on the podcast today is somebody that uh, many of our listeners will of course know and we're delighted to welcome sports car legend Andy Wallace to the podcast. Andy, thank you for coming on. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Now for those, just to bring everybody up to speed, we have a big audience to this podcast so we know everybody will come at it from different angles. Sometimes Andy has conquered some of the most pre- as prestigious races in the world, Le Mans, Daytona, um, Sebring. His name is synonymous with sports car racing. Uh, Andy's remarkable career began in the early 1980s, which uh, we don't see, you don't get the video for this, dear podcast listeners, but uh, but we do. And he doesn't look a day over 25, I can assure <laughs> you, in, in, in the video that we're looking at. 
uh, he cut his teeth in uh, UK's Formula Ford and Formula 3. Then, of course, going on to the Silk Cut Jaguar team in 86 and Le Mans success at the 24-hour Le Mans in 1988. And he would continue to dominate endurance, the, the endurance racing scene uh, for many, many years, for decades. And his achievements didn't stop their holder of uh, jaw-dropping records like the Bugatti Chiron Supersport 300+, Plus, which was 490 kilometers an hour uh, which i did have to go and uh, and double check because i've heard andy say it before 304.773 miles per hour you can all stop wincing now when i say <laughs> when i say that so uh, andy thank you so much for coming on um kev I mean, oh goodness me this could be we've got limited time with andy so where do you want to start well, I think we should start at the beginning in terms of Le Mans, shouldn't we? Partly because this is a Le Mans series, so that seems sensible. But of course, yeah, Andy, you won first time out. So, uh, I mean, wh- what were your expectations coming into 88? Obviously, there was a huge amount of uh, interest in Jaguar's return. It was their third year back with TWR, XGR9, five of them up against a phalanx of 962s, including the three works cars. So, And you were kind of the quickest car, really. Was What was your expectation coming into the event? Well, first of all, it, it was my, I mean, I, I had done a couple of sports car races before Le Mans. Um, I drove in Jerez and rode Atlanta and that was as a warm up because obviously you don't just jump into a car and start racing at Le Mans. Um, and I was, I was the third driver in the car, if you like, because Yann um, Lammers and Johnny Dumfries were the two main drivers for the whole year. Yann had actually picked me as we'd raced together in Macau. We had a great race together and kind of got friendly there and he put in a good word for me. So I, I went to Paul Ricard and did a audition and uh, got the job. But of course, Formula 3 and a little bit of Formula 3000 in between, but um, Formula 3 car to a Le Mans prototype car is a big, big step. So there was no test day in 88. They would resurface the straight and done some work and there wasn't a test day. So I knew how fast the cars were going to go on the straight. It was in the 240 mile an hour range which if you say it really quickly, doesn't sound too bad. But what is pretty shocking is coming onto the straight out of Tetra Rouge corner, pinning the throttle, and you're somewhere between 50 seconds and a minute wide open in a, in a racing car. And that doesn't happen anywhere. So after a few seconds, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, you start thinking, blimey, this is pretty quick. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I there's no speedo in the car in those days. So I knew 2,000 RPM was 200 uh, sorry, 6,000 RPM was 200 miles an hour. So I sat it at 200 miles an hour my first time down the straight. I thought, blimey, this is pretty quick. I'll just, you know, feel, feel things out. And then a Mercedes and a Jaguar shot past me like I was tied to a post halfway down the straight. So I realized, okay, all right, next lap, we're going to be going flat. Um, yeah, it's quite shocking to drive a racing car that fast because 200 miles an hour, just over, is pretty normal. Then you go to Le Mans. And it's different. And of course, this is pre. This is two years before they put the chicanes in as well. Like there's there's quite a lot of footage of the race. And I think at one point, I think it's Jan in the car at the time. I think he slipstreams past her on the Porsches. The Porsche gets in his slipstream, goes back by, and then he does it again. And it's all in one straight before they even get to the next oh. braking zone. So it was it was quite something to see that the pack of cars coming down the old Mulsanne flat out for that long. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I realised I didn't answer your first question, which was what was it like to, to race for Jaguar? Well, of course, you're talking about Tom Walkinshaw racing, Jaguar cars. Jaguar hadn't won Le Mans for 37 years. It was a big deal. And we were fighting the, 
the German car industry, if you like. So it, it was absolutely amazing to turn up at Le Mans, all the people that arrived to, to watch the race, the, the enthusiasm, the people that are camping, the keep, people that are standing up and propping themselves up against the tree so they don't fall asleep and watching the whole 24 hours. I know that from a, a teenager when my dad used to take me there. And, and But just to be there and be on the other side of the fence, it's such an amazing event and such a lot of weight on your shoulders, if you like. So I realized as the third guy, I could be the one that messes this up. And I'd already so, said to myself, if, if it was me that messed it up, I wouldn't come back to the pits where I would, would get ripped to shreds. I'd just climb over the barrier and get a taxi to out of there, you know? Um, so no, there was a lot of, a lot of pressure, but of course, Le Mans is different from um, a lot of other races, but it's also uh, sports car racing in general is different from, say, single-seater racing, where the three of you need to work together. And it's no good at the end of the race saying, oh, I was the fastest guy in that car. Well, where did you finish? Oh, well, we didn't. So all three of you need to work together. You need to trust each other. And you need to get that car going around the track as fast as you possibly can. Uh, and so you all three are comfortable in the car. And less so now because um, of modern materials and modern technology, but you had to make sure you didn't break the car. And this could easily happen, obviously, against a slow car, but gearboxes in those days were really, really on the ragged edge. You know, we had, I think uh, we must have had perhaps 700 foot-pounds of torque. Um, I crossed between metric and imperial because in those days I was everything was imperial. And now I don't even know what it means anymore, but... Um, anyway, I think it was around about that much, probably 740-ish horsepower. And that's a lot to ask of, of the gearbox. Also, we were only allowed five-speed gearboxes in those days. So the gaps between the gears for Le Mans were huge. You'd accelerate in fourth all the way up to the red line, which was six, 750, I believe. Bang, into, into fifth. And then suddenly the, the soundtrack didn't match the video picture. Everything's whizzing past you like crazy and the RPM's fairly low. But don't worry, that catches up by the end of the straight. So, yeah, everything about that race and all these things that are coming to you and, and just the the just the, the immense occasion, you realize there's a lot of pressure. So one of the first things Jan did, um, we went into the motorhome, sat together, and he said, right, guys, guess what? The gearbox is going to break and we're going to lose the race. And then he stopped talking and we're Johnny and I are sat there thinking, Oh, well, that's not brilliant, is it? But then he went, aha, but I have a plan. And I think thanks to Jan, that's the only way we did manage to win that race. And the plan was to try to eliminate one or two upshifts or several actually over a lap and try to give the gearbox an easier time. So the S's, which you could take in third or fourth, it made, virtually no difference in fact once you got used to it i would say no difference in speed so the s is after the first corner you know down the hill take that in fourth and then some of the other corners we were up one gear on what you'd normally do then the second one was um when you go on and off the throttle certainly don't bang the throttle wide open if you've gone over a curb to, to stress the the drivetrain we were running a spool uh, in those so no diff you know so completely joined together rear axle and that was because if a drive shaft broke, you had a chance to get it back to the pits. Whereas if you had an open diff, you wouldn't. So everything that was transmitted from one side went to the other side. And, you, and all this stress was going through the gearbox. Well, obviously, the, the race is history now and you know what happened. And uh, yeah, had we been less cautious with the gearbox, we would have broken it. How aware were, because obviously famously, Jan 
uh, for the last hour or so, basically left it in fourth, I think, didn't he? Mm-hmm. How, how, and he, but he didn't really say anything because obviously you weren't that far ahead of the second place Porsche. How aware were you within the team that there was something going on and, and that he was managing that issue? Or did he just tell you at the end when he went, chaps, I've just <laughs> driven an hour in one gear? Actually, in his last pit stop, and, and we knew that Porsche were monitoring our radio, so he just said, uh, yeah, guys, yeah, it's all, it's all good. Uh, I've got a surprise for you. I'll tell you after the race. <laughs> so that's when everybody knew. But, of course, we were talking with each other, the three drivers, um, quite a lot during the race, and we were sort of updating each other and, um, and, and you said, I think earlier, you said it was the fastest car there out of the five Jaguars. Well, the interesting thing, we took all five cars to Silverstone. To, we were on the south circuit at Silverstone. And I got the job of testing all the cars before we loaded them up. And they were all pretty much identical, um, as, as you would expect. But uh, late on in, in the all the practice sessions, and you know, you're changing things, trying to improve the car. Late on... Um, we decided as a, as a team with our, with our engineer, we decided let's try a softer rear spring. And the reason to do that was to, to take out some of the rake at high speed. So the back of the car squatted down. Now on a flat bottom car, that's pretty lethal if you, if you go nose up, but on a ground effect car, it just reduces the drag. So in fact, we think we were running about seven millimeters nose up. Um, which is kind of unusual, but it did it did feather the car out, if you like, and we picked up some speed. So we ended up as the fastest Jaguar on the straight, which which came in very very handy, and that double or triple toe passed on the straight that you were talking about. That is the most amazing thing to to witness from from the from the actual hot seat because you will be coming through Tetra Rouge and you'll have an angry 962 behind you and he gets up, gets a really good toe, pulls out, pulls alongside you. And as he goes by, I mean, I got used to this in the end, especially with Hans Stuck, he was not happy. You'd sort of wave at him as he went by because <laughs> you knew Phil well as soon as he pulled back in and halfway down the straight, you'd pick up the toe. We had probably less drag than the Porsches, but they had a little bit more power. So they were usually the ones that came flying past out of the corner onto the straight. And then as you went past them, there was nothing they could do. So you'd wave back and they quite often didn't wave with their whole hand. It was a bit more like this as you <laughs> went back past, but that was part of it, wasn't it? The thing I like about that race as well is that you were kind of the hair of the team from the very start, like even on the opening lap, Jan's getting stuck into them. But you went back again, obviously, with TWR for three more years. Uh, and in each each case, the, the cars were sort of there or thereabouts, 89 quick, but didn't get to quite get to the end. 90 mm. or so you in the second place car after the poor old Brun Porsche broke in the last 15 minutes. Yeah. And then 91, that's, I still think, one of the most bizarre races, <laughs> really, given who ended up winning. Mm. Um, are, are, were there any one of those that you thought, oh, yeah, that was the one we should have? Was, it, was there another Jaguar win that got away from your personal point of view? I think, yeah, I think 90 when we came second, although that was very um, unfortunate for the for the Porsche, um, we had got a very fast car and, and things were going really well. And then in the middle of the night, um, Franz Conrad, um, I think he tripped over a slow car. Uh, and, and then so we had a stop and the length of the stop was probably what the difference was between first and second but i'm not i'm not blaming friends in any way i mean we're you're all in this together and you all do the best job and if one of you has an issue then you you agree that it could have happened to any of you so it's not that but i think that was one that got away uh definitely um and he was the guy that had the least amount of time in the car as well wasn't he andy well he was and i think yeah i mean tom walkinshaw was a 
brilliant guy and, and uh, you know, a fantastic racer, but he, he never took prisoners. So poor old Franz was kept out of the car in a lot of the practice sessions. So he didn't get a lot of running and then they chucked him in the car. And then if he was, uh, you know, a couple of seconds away from what the rest of us were doing, Tom would chew his ear, which I, I didn't really agree with. I mean, Franz is a brilliant driver and he would have, over time, he would have got himself in and he would have been fine. But he had so much pressure that I think he took a few risks, um, which is a shame because um, that was quite a quite a good hit into the fence and it did take a while to, to fix it. And after that, you obviously drove the Toyota. And when I was speaking to Kenny Atchison for this feature about one of the cars that may appear later on, on this list, shall we say... <laughs> which you of course also drove the topic of conversation segued onto the Toyota that that you both raced in in 92 and 93 and he said that that is the only car that he drove in which he was aware while he was driving it that he had a smile on his face which to me sounds amazing considering that you know he drove Jaguar he drove Nissan he drove um Sauber Mercedes so what was your view of of that Toyota which obviously was outclassed in the race by Peugeot um you know, can he really rated it? Oh, well, it was amazing. And, and j- just before that happened, so when, when Group C came to an end at the end of 90, we were using the, the, the Jag with the V6 turbo, lots of boost. So in qualifying, you had this horrendous amounts of horsepower and it, it that put a grin on your face. But then when the rules changed, um, we, we continued to be allowed to use ground effects, full ground effects, but the weight limit went from 900 down to 750. So you've got 750 kilos Ground effects working as good as well as ever. In fact, even better because we're a couple of years on in development. So you had a car that could pull horrendous G through the corner. And the only thing that would actually, or did let the car down was it was an H pattern gearbox. We hadn't got to paddle shift at those days. And it was so, when you, when you were flat out on the straight in sixth gear and you arrived at a chicane, not necessarily Le Mans, but anywhere else, and you broke, you had carbon brakes, all this downforce, only 750 kilos, and you've got to row yourself through the gears. And that was the Achilles heel of, of these cars in those days. I mean, it would have been incredible with a with a proper gear shift system. Um, but yeah, what I do remember, I, I did the testing uh, through 1991 in Japan. We spent, spent the whole year in Japan pretty much. And when they first wheeled that car out and we went, we were at the um, Yamaha test track in Japan, not far from their base, actually. Got it out onto the track, did a few laps, and then a corner that you'd uh, look at it, and it's definitely a third gear corner. So you go through in third, and you think, well, hang on, that's that's nowhere near. So then you start taking it in fourth, and then before the end of the day, it's flat in fourth. And so what, what really, really stuck out to me was you knew it was going to be fast in the high-speed corners because it had a lot of downforce. You were always a bit disappointed with these cars in the very slow corners because they were stiffly sprung to cope with the downforce at high speed. But what was absolutely shocking was this medium speed corner. I would say third, fourth gear out of six. The grip in those corners was just on another level, a level that I'd never experienced before. And and that is probably what uh, Kenny's talking about, about the grin. I mean, it was absolutely unbelievable. And the other thing too uh, I noticed was you got squat, your lungs and everything got squashed so much in all the corners if you're on a busy track that uh, you'd come in the pits and, and you just hadn't had time to fill your lungs enough. So the first thing you did when you stopped in the pits and they're asking you what the car was like, you, 
you're completely out of breath. So it, you had to go on another fitness program. There's some more, you know, amazing cars that you drove. I mean, third in 95 in the McLaren. Maybe one of the less amazing cars was the Audi that you drove in 99 for its sort of big debut that year. Tell us about that because from that experience, you probably would never have imagined that Audi would go on to achieve all that it did. Yeah, and it was a it was a shame really because I think that that could have been a, a really good car. It just there wasn't quite enough time to get everything ready for the race, and then of course we had so many gearbox problems with that car. And the Yoast uh, team with the Open R eight R eight R, I guess they called it in those days, they had gone to a paddle shift system fairly close to the race and there was no time for us to do that so we were we spent a lot of time in the race scooping the gearbox innards out and replacing it there were all sorts of issues the car was a bit light on front downforce so i think those two things together is what really kept the speed down but but in terms of the car i mean the chassis and the engine i mean it was a good car but it was just too early was built, of course, by Richard Lloyd's operation, which had overseen the British touring car success for Audi. And you then had another sort of uh, un- uncompetitive, shall we say, situation after that with, with Cadillac. But then for 2001, the Bentley boys arrive. And from people that I've spoken to that were involved in that program, Eric van der Poel really, really enjoyed it, for example. Tell us what it was like to, you know, I know there was a lot of fun that was had with sort of, you know, wearing hats and, you know, evoking, you know, the, the great days of the Bentley boys from the 1930s. What was it like as, as that program came back into being? Oh, it was really fantastic to be a part of that. And the car was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, the regulations in those days. So if you used a closed um, LMP1, I guess it was, um, you got two inch narrower tires by regulation and you got a bit more boost. So the car was very fast on the straight, but the tire wear situation was, was more difficult. So you had to change tires more often. Um, but if you just forget all that and just think about what it was like to drive, it was a fantastic machine. And, and yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that race too in 2001. And if you remember the first part of the race, probably 20, 25 minutes, it was dry. And I, I was in the car at the start. And then as we came out of uh, Morsang Corner, going towards Indianapolis, it just absolutely chucked it down with rain. So we're all, we've all got into top gear by now. In front of me was um, Stefan Johansson in the Golf R8. Behind me was Ralph Kellner's in the champion car because of, there was a couple more ahead of that. And then suddenly this rain comes down and you're on slicks. And you know, if you shut the throttle or you try and slow down, you're going to get hit from somebody behind or you're going to lose control. So it was a balancing act of looking in the mirror, lifting off a little bit, looking in the mirror again, looking ahead of you and, and trying not to crash. And then all of a sudden, uh, Stefan started just pirouetting in front of me, just, just round and round and round and round, just as we got to the right-hand part of Indianapolis. Then his car shot off to the left, hit the guardrail, and then this big piece of orange and blue came flying through the air just as I'm arriving at the apex of uh, Indianapolis. And I threw all the spray. I thought it was the car, the whole car. So I kind of you know, stupidly just put my head down. And then this thing bounced uh, on the top of my car and jumped off. And it turned out it was just the nose section. Uh, anyway, we came around the corner. Then, then um, so I guess we were up to probably like fourth place or something at that point. And then I get to the Porsche Curves. One of the um, factory Audis had gone off at the Porsche Curve. So, uh, so suddenly <laughs> by staying on the track, we were, we were really doing okay. Um, 
anyway, so we came to the pits and there was a bit of a kerfuffle. Martin Brundle was in the other Bentley and instead of going through the pit to stop at the second pit, he stopped at the first one, which meant when I did my pit stop, I had to be dragged back and I lost time and I couldn't leave the pits. The The red light was on and I got shuffled back behind the, the safety car, the second safety car. Um, anyway, as, as you know, we finished third. Um, we had a gearbox issue. It, it flooded the compressor. But I just remember that was an amazing race. It was an absolutely fantastic car to drive. And before we move on to the the, the top 10 entries, uh, Andy, I've got two more questions for you. One, is there a, a Le Mans highlight that we haven't mentioned that, we, that, that perhaps we might not be as aware of, might not be as obvious, but sort of stands out to you personally? And of all your time driving at Le Mans, is there a particular driver, either a co-driver or someone you raced against, that you that you that really stood out as being, yeah, they were they were really on top of of, of the track? I think on, on the driver side, I think Jan Lammers because he was he was such a complete driver, an amazing car control, knew how to look after the car, knew how to rally the troops and and, and particularly the two co-drivers to get everybody on the same page, and that's a that's a real skill that you don't see very often. Um, in terms of the car, one thing that does stick in my mind, um, so the car that we won the LMP2 in was, it was 2006. What was really stunning about that year, so those in that year, what the cars were even lighter, I think. Was it 675 kilos, the LMP2s by then, or maybe 700 or whatever, I can't remember exactly. But um, you, we were doing three stints on the Michelin tyres. And so what would happen, you'd go out on your new set of tyres after the driver change, and you'd start off and you'd probably be about three seconds off the best time. And towards the end of that stint, the car would get quicker and quicker and quicker. And the last lap before you came in, you were about three seconds quicker and it was your fastest lap. You then came in and filled it up with fuel without changing tires. Go back out. You've lost the three seconds again. And then bam, 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 it comes back. And then the third mm. stint was the same. So I'd never known um, a car and a tire um, that could give you that performance. So your last lap of your third stint, was either your fastest lap or equal to the other two ends of the stints. That is absolutely remarkable to have a race car that you can drive wide open and the speed stays the same on the same set of tyres for three stints. That was in wow. the MG wow. Lola AER with a 17-lap winning advantage, Andy. I don't think you're <laughs> going to see that um, for quite a long time. Yeah, we might have had a bit of help there from, from some mechanical <laughs> issues, but... But yeah, no, but it was a it was a great car, and RML of course were, ran the car, fantastic team, and then Mike Newton and, and Tommy Erdos they they did a fantastic job. So all of us together had a had a fantastic race that year. Well, thank you, Andy. That's where we'll leave the first part of our podcast. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the top ten sports cars that never raced at Le Mans. Stick around. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Let's get into our top 10 cars that never raced at Le Mans for various reasons. We'll find out uh, some of those over the next 20 minutes or half an hour or so. Now, whilst Andy, it's a delight to have Andy here for this debate. He is a busy man and he has to... I, we didn't ask him where he had to go, probably to teach someone how to drive a Bugatti very quickly somewhere. Uh, so for the limited time that we had him, we did ask him to chip in on a couple of the cars in this top 10 that you are going to hear later and a debate on the top two. Uh, but he couldn't stick around for the whole thing. But So that's why uh, sometimes you don't hear Andy on all of the debates for these cars. But here we go. Uh, let's get into the top 10 of this list. And interestingly, because there's so much research going into this Actually, it's a list that uh, that Kevin chipped in some of the research on and uh, James ended up deciding the, the final order. So number 10 is the first one with you, Kev, and we'll kick off with you. So number 10 is the Lotus 23, which is a little sports car, really, sports prototype, I suppose, of the early 60s. It had a range of different engines and it has quite a nice little, well, probably not nice at the time, an interesting Le Mans story. Uh, so two were entered for the 1962 24 hours, one with a 1,000cc engine and one with a 750cc. The reason that's relevant is because the lower classes and, and things like the uh, index of performance, that sort of thing, uh, which were usually won by smaller cars, was uh, the domain of the French cars often. Uh, and Lotus, obviously lightweight uh, construction, Colin Chapman was you know pushing the boundaries in many ways, was a real threat to that. So that's the sort of background to that. Now, uh, these two cars were thrown out of scrutineering because uh, on the front was they had four stud fixing, on the rears they had six. And the argument was that, well, the spare wheel could only replace one pair of wheels. Uh, there were various other things picked up on it, but that that <laughs> that was the one that sort of, I think, was the uh, the, the big one. So uh, Lotus made changes, uh, including modifying the rear wheels to a four-stud setup. And the officials then said, well, in that case, if it was six before and it's four now, that must be too weak now, so it's unsafe, so you still can't run it. Uh, and despite, you know, Chapman was quite a fearsome individual, and the RAC representative getting involved, the uh, the organisers wouldn't even see the car again. Uh, uh, and Colin Chapman was was incensed uh, and vowed never to go back to Le Mans. And he, you know, he didn't as a works uh, works entry. So it was quite a significant moment. Ferrari actually had things picked up on at the same time, but I think they probably had, you know, <laughs> multiple Le Mans winner, major mark. Uh, they probably had a bit more clout, more cars as well uh, than wow. Lotus. So the Lotus 23 never got to race at Le Mans, even though it was literally there, ready to go. Um, but it was it was a bit of a giant, giant sleigh, really. You know, Jim Clark led the Nebring 1,000 kilometres in one before he was overcome by exhaust fumes. Yeah, it was a, it was a, a, you know, a very competitive car in the smaller classes. It had a range of engines right up to, I think, the biggest one they had in and well, normally it was the the sixteen hundred cc Cosworth had a fifteen hundred cc twin cam Lotus engine. Uh, it's, it's it's had various uh, versions over the years, a B, a C, uh, and they're still raced very successfully uh, today in historic events. So, mm. on on sheer, I, I would actually put it ahead of if it my list. I'd probably put it ahead of the the one we're going to talk about in a minute because of its longevity and the fact that it's got that really cool Le Mans specific story. So I'd have probably put it in at nine. However, I can't deny that the number nine, <laughs> the nine car on this list is definitely cooler and more fearsome and potent and powerful. So um, it, it definitely gets more of a, an X Factor score, the next car. 
Well, let's find out. Cooler, more fearsome. Uh, let's find out what number nine is, James. I went for the Audi IMSA 90 Quattro. It didn't even win the IMSA GTOs, the IMSA GTO title in its single season of competition in, in 1989. And that's largely because it skipped the Daytona 24 hours and the Sebring 12 hours, which are the sort of the two long distance outliers, if you like, of the, the championship that year. Um, but then, you know, the rest of that season, it was a hugely successful machine. Um, it, it won at its second attempt um, at, at Summit Point. Hans Stuck and Hurley Hayward were the drivers. It claimed seven victories that season. Um, it was only good enough for Stuck to be third in the points because um, the Roush sort of Mercury Cougar XR7s were the, um, the the cars that had done the full season, so sort of remained ahead. Um, but a phenomenally successful car that sort of built in, in its short period of time because Audi went to, to DTM for the following year. So um, it, it had a very short competition history. But what it did do was it built on the success that Audi had had in the USA in Trans Am the previous year. Um, and it kind of builds up Audi as a sort of a proper force in in circuit racing and in sports car racing, which of course um, then really does get um, expanded upon in the 21st century at Le Mans. Um, but a really cool car that um, when I was speaking to Martin Tomczyk when I was covering DTM last season, um, he actually chose it as his favourite car. Now, this is despite the fact that he only ever drove it in a demo, but he said, you know, this fire-breathing car, it was just so awesome. He loved it. Um, and, you know, I think special cars have special mm. moments but they are also you know revered and i think that was one of the the factors that made me put it onto this list ahead of um some other cars that i don't know whether we want to talk about kev the, the cars that we almost consider for this list just a couple of little asides really one is i think we should probably point out that, that this list is a mix of cars that were eligible for Le Mans but didn't race there for whatever reason and sort of sports cars or endurance races that weren't eligible uh, but that we'd have liked to have seen there, I guess. So, so that's probably worth making a point. But also, mm. just on the, just on that, I, I was fortunate enough to see Zach Brown's collection of cars up at United All Sports a couple of months ago. He has uh, one of them is uh, is is the the Audi Quattro Trans Am car from the year before. Uh, and what's rather nice, I've got a picture of it here. As you know, the Americans uh, went through a phase for a long time of putting the cubic inches of the engine on the bonnet or the side. Well, the, uh, uh, the 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 Germans had a little bit of a joke with uh, with that Trans Am car because they had two thousand one hundred and ten cubic centimeters because obviously it's a, t- <laughs> it's a tiddly little two point one, but obviously a massive turbo on it. So a little bit of a sense of humour there from uh, uh, from the Audi guys. But yeah, I think it's it's a good point to say that Audi had a history, yeah, had a history in endurance racing before you know the Audi the Audi R eight and the Le Mans uh, steamroller. So I'm I'm quite happy to to see it on the list. And I did get to see that Trans Am car when I went to the Long Beach Classic in um, 2019, and I was gutted that it didn't run. It was, you know, there were tons of IMSA GTO cars, and I really wanted that car to to appear. Um, sadly, it was on static display mm. that weekend. Okay, that's our first two cars. What is next to number eight, James? Well, we've got the BMW M3 GTR V8, which won the Nürburgring 24 hours twice outright in 2004 and 2005. Um, That would probably be enough on its own. But it also steamrolled Porsche in the 2001 American Le Mans Series GT class. Um, As we'll go on to with another car later on our list, the absence of a road-going alternative 
uh, sort of homologated car was a was a problem for for, for BMW that year, um, and ultimately the homologation requirements then changed at the end of the year, um, which combined with a lack of will from BMW to build more cars uh, and a sort of um, dug-in position, if you like, from Gerhard Berger sort of meant that it was going to be um, uncompetitive, basically, mm. um, had it continued beyond 2001 in the LMS, which was a real shame because um, it was phenomenally successful both in the hands of the sort of quasi-factory schnitzer mm. team and in customer hands with the PTG team when they mm. got the their hands on the car later on. They had the Yokohama cars, Schnitzers ran on uh, Michelin's. Ultimately, the title went to Jörg Muller, um, who shared for most of the season with JJ Leto. They were split for the final round to sort of increase their chances of winning the title um, because they had quite a lot of reliability dramas. So there was a chance, albeit a slim one, that um, the Alex Job Porsche, which had won the opening three races, could sort of snatch it late on. Um, ultimately, Ultimately, that wasn't really necessary, and, uh, and Jörg Müller won the title anyway. I spoke to Dirk Müller, who uh, is not related to Jörg Müller, as I thought for for a very long time, um, who was also driving the car uh, that year with Frederick Eckblom, and he said that it had, you know, it had a, a thumping, great fire-breathing V8, you know, a, another one <laughs> on this list, and he regarded that engine as one of the coolest that he'd ever. Um, you know, expressed in his career. And, and Dirk Muller obviously then won the Nürburgring 24 outright in that car in 04. So um, a, a pretty good car. I mean, the fact that it won um, outright was also a consideration and sort of bumping it up this list. You know, we were talking, Kevin, in formulating our sort of shortlist about, you know, how much credence do you put on a car that wins outright versus class? And I suppose this has got both. Yeah, this is a good bridging car, actually, isn't it? Because the rest of the cars on this list are overall outright race uh, contestants, really. And this is kind of a bit of both. Probably worth saying at that point, and I completely agree with this position, by the way. I think this is absolutely perfectly slotted <laughs> in. Uh, is that So the, the other GT cars uh, aren't going to be on this list, and it's probably worth mentioning GT3, which we had quite a lot of discussion about. We haven't put GT3 in, partly because, I mean, that's a list in itself. There are so many GT3 cars, but also because... As of next year, we should be getting GC3 or whatever they're going to call it, uh, but they're GT3-based cars there. So the Audi R8 is the obvious car that that I guess would come from that, but we we decided to exclude that, but uh, uh, sort of just an honorary tip of the hat to the R8. And the next couple on the list are ones, again, Kev, that you brought to the table, to the party. Uh, did you decide where they slot into the top 10 or did you just bring all the, the research and let James do the final ordering? Because number seven, number six, again, a couple of couple of cars that you brought in. A uh, little bit of a chat about ordering, but generally it was here is the here's what I've here's what I've got, and it was it was James's list partly because we knew we'd be doing this. So if we yeah. completely agreed on all of it, it'd be a really boring discussion. Wouldn't it? <laughs> but, uh, uh, so so yes, um, we but we had a little bit back and forth about. It. So yeah, so number seven is the Lancia D twenty four, which is probably not a car that most people will be familiar with. Uh, Vittorio Yano designed the the, the Lancia D fifty Formula One car. Uh, which I also think is a bit underrated probably, uh, and which ended up at Ferrari. So he designed the D24. It appeared at the end of 1953. Uh, it finished first and second to the Crea Panamericana, which is this incredible long, long mm-hmm. race in South America, incredibly hard, tough event. Um, 
uh, and it was it was the major major player in the 1954 World Sports Car Championship. Um, so which it, it didn't win. They just narrowly lost out to Ferrari, which they probably shouldn't have done. Uh, they had a bit of a disaster at Sebring 12 hours where they were miles faster than everything else, but they all had problems. They ended up get, getting beaten famously by the 1500cc Oscar of Bill Lloyd and a certain Sterling Moss uh, with a you know, ludicrous giant slaying mm. type uh, type thing. But, um, you know, it uh, it won the non-championship Targa Florio. It won the Emilia Emilia. It won the Crea Panama Americana. Three of the great sort of almost throwbacks to the city to city races at the turn of the century. So it was a you know it was a very effective car. Narrowly missed out on the championship. Didn't race at Le Mans. Lancey were very on and off with their Le Mans participation at the time, and they were just in financial trouble pretty much the whole time while producing these incredible incredible cars, both in F1 and sports cars. So it did enough on an international stage with big races and overall victories to get onto the list, but yep. pro- probably not quite enough success was my, I think, is the thinking. Uh, I don't want to put words in James's mouth, but I think that we're probably on the same page on this one. It's, it's it's a kind of a mega car, but didn't quite do enough to get any further up this list. Right. Okay. I mean, this was one of the cars that featured in the sidebar to the sort of original um, MC12 feature, um, along with actually the the M3 GTR. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm more than happy with with, with this place on the list. Well, I, I suppose I should be, given that I. I'm the one who <laughs> had, the, had the final say. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's move because this goes together with two of the cars that you bought, Kev. What's number six? Number six is the Alfa Romeo T33 TT12. It's quite a mouthful. Wow. The reason it's a mouthful is the T33 series covers a, a very – almost went into the levels of when the Audi just called all their prototypes the R18, even though they would change each year and redesign. So the very first car, the T33 II, is actually just a two-litre car, a very pretty little uh, car, actually, that finished one, two, three in class at Le Mans in 68. So some of the T33s did race at Le Mans, um, and they usually played second fiddle – uh, once they got into th- the three litre category, which uh, by 72 was the top class, they played second fiddle to uh, Ferrari and Matra, depending on <laughs> which season you're talking about. But this particular car gets on because this is this is when Alpha really get it right. They f- it t- takes a long time. Um, so this is a this is a 12 cylinder engine. Um, it's kind of caught, I think it's described as a flat 12, but actually I think it's a 180 degree V12. So I don't know where, at what point you'd call it, call one over the other. So, but it took a long time to, to, to get it right. Um, and, uh, it came out very first in 1917. That was a shambolic season for Alpha. Mm. But by 75, the car is a bit more sorted. The works team isn't running the car, but Willie Cowson is, uh, or does that team does. And it won seven of the nine rounds and comfortably took the, the championship, but it didn't do Le Mans. Because they had a very, it was this, this was the fuel crisis, of course, first fuel crisis, um, and they had very strict fuel consumption regulations for Le Mans in 1975, which which Alpha didn't really think, or the Carlson team didn't really think the Alphas could have could have done. So they stayed away, and obviously it was won by the Golf Mirage of Jackie X and Derek Bell at one of the slowest speeds for years. The Alpha wasn't around in 76, and then they had a 33 SC12 version, which was a yeah, you know, again another development along the theme, and also won the championship. But I went for the seventy-five car because that's the that's the breakthrough car. I guess the reason it's not any higher up on this list, despite the fact that it's a world championship winner, is it didn't I didn't really beat anyone. You know, by the time right. by the time they get it right, Ferrari have gone, Matra have gone, Porsche haven't yet come in with the nine three six. So they're having yeah. You know, so it's racing against sort of old nine oh eights and things like that. So. 
it doesn't quite prove itself. You know, that's the story of the Alfa Mayo program, in my view, in the sort of from the late sixties to the mid to late seventies, is that they do take wins here and there, but they never really nail it against the top opposition. So a world championship winning car, but not against the the level of opposition that we'll see higher up on this list, and that's why it's number six. And that was it, wasn't it? It was one that I was happy to have a little higher up because of that accolade and a car that, you know, wins a world championship, in my view, should be fairly high up the list. But um, yeah, it, it was a tricky one to place. And ultimately, I think, um, yeah, Kev was perhaps the arbiter in, in this ending up pretty much mid-pack in, in our top 10. Okay, on to number five in our list, which was one that we talked about when we were still online with Andy Wallace. It's the Eagle Toyota or Toyota Eagle. I don't know which way round it should be, really. Uh, Mark III, which came into the IMSA GTP Championship at the end of 1991, um, very quickly became a winner, um, dominated 92, and by the end in 93, it had pretty much no opposition, and it won every single race it entered, um, although it did skip around for reasons that aren't really clear so it gave the the jost 962 a sort of swan song if you like at the end of the G- the gcp era but this is a, a car that I've, I've been longing to talk to andy about um I, I i elected not to speak to you andy while putting the written feature together to keep you in the back pocket as it were for for the feature um for the podcast sorry and of course you had great success in the car winning sebring twice in it um but what was it like sort of coming in you know only doing two races a year in it because of course you did daytona as well when um it was a bit of a a walking wounded situation wasn't it um yeah no no absolutely it was a monster of a car it it, unbelievable car because of course it had this 2.1 liter four-cylinder engine with a turbo bigger than my laptop. Um, <laughs> and so the lag on that car was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. And my uh, one of the memories I, I, I'll never forget is it was the old hairpin at Sebring that goes a little bit further, further than the one you've got now, that it was chicane thing you've got now. And so it was, a, it was a tighter corner. So you would go blitzing past all the slow cars into the chicane, then bam, 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 through all the gears. And then you'd go wide open on the throttle before you even turned in. But even then, doing that, you stagger through the corner, all the cars you just passed went past you again, and then it would pick up. So you to try to predict what was going to happen. Of course, if you went on just a fraction too early, I mean, this thing had, I mean, in the race, probably at least 900 horsepower. Um, and it was an absolute rocket ship. So to tame it was was quite tricky. Having said that, we're talking about cars, not engines, let's say, but the car, the chassis itself was so well put together and so well designed that it had huge amounts of downforce. It was a stiff chassis and it was able to cope with all this power, um, confusingly. Now, just a small aside to this, I remember reading in Autosport um, before I'd gone to Sebring for the first time and I read this story that uh, testing one test session had been stopped because there was an alligator on the track. Right. So I just put that in my mind. And this was before I'd been to Sebring the first time. Anyway, did a couple of races there. Then while I was in the Toyota, they said to me in 92, in the dark qualifying session, look, just go out and try the qualifying boost and see what it's like. So off I go. Then I accelerate out of this hairpin, got through a couple of gears. Then there was a loud explosion. And there was a massive fireball behind me. So I realized it's not 
not really good. So um, the first thing you do when you see this, um, you turn everything off. So I just switched everything off because of the fireball. But I'm still going, I'm probably going way over 100 miles an hour at this point. And of course, when I switched everything off, the lights went off and Sebring is notoriously dark. So I thought, oh shit, that's no good. Uh, well, so I put the ignition back on to get some headlights and I steered through the, the following very fast chicane and I arrived at turn 10 and there's a runoff area down at turn 10, which then I remembered was where the alligator was spotted. So I went down this uh, runoff area I've got everything switched off now and there's a fire behind. So I open the door and I'm going to jump out. And I thought, well, hang on a second. It's dark. What happens if the alligator's there? So then I was in two minds. Do I, do I risk getting burned or I risk the alligator? And I was thinking, which is worse? Anyway, um, as it happened, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. I didn't see an alligator. So I had this long extension for the radio cord so I could walk around the back of the car. So I got the back of the bodywork off and they're talking to me. So what do you see? What do you see? So I shined the torch that they had in the car as well. I shined it in and I said, ah, oh, guys, yeah, we've got a three-cylinder engine, then a gap, and then a one-cylinder engine. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the, the uh, qualifying boost was probably slightly too much. But that was the only chink in the armour because wow. then obviously back coming back to the race, it was... Uh Mega. I was really hoping you were going to say that Autosport had saved your life because you'd avoided the alligator because of the thing you remember. That, that's what I was saying. Well, no, the thing is with Autosport is you, I always believe everything it said. And I'm well, sure that course. was a true story, you know. But, um, <laughs> but there's one thing. I mean, an alligator in the daylight, apparently, if you run in zigzags, they can't catch you. But at night, you're not going to see it, are you? Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, that was number five. I will hear from Andy again when we get to the top two. But now, uh, number four, James, what's on the list? Number four is the Mercedes CLK GTR, which is the um, sort of first of the trio of Mercedes that appear in, in sports car racing at the end of the 90s. Um, it wins the FIA GT Championship um, at the first time of asking in the hands of Bern Schneider. Um, after sort of the first three races where it um, has a sort of few teething troubles, um, it wins the fourth race at Donington. And after that, it's only beaten twice all season. Um, it was developed, sort of, well, sort of conceived, developed, built and raced all within the space of 128 days, which is pretty remarkable. And that's because Mercedes was sort of caught on the hop by the um, collapse of the International Touring Car Championship at the end of 96, where Alfa Romeo and Opel simultaneously withdrew. Mercedes was left as the only player still in the party and sort of had to um, shift across to a different championship. Um, there was a, a bit of controversy because... The rules were changed ahead of the 97 season 
which meant that Mercedes didn't require a road-going homologated version before the season started. Now, that was the case with the Porsche and with the sort of uh, McLaren F1 GTR, which was powered by a BMW engine factory BMW effort, although they were McLarens, um, which was source of a, a bit of controversy. Um, and another source of controversy was that Bern Schneider twice claimed victories in cars that technically weren't his, um, mechanical dramas for his car um, at the A1 ring. And then again at Suzuka meant he was switched into uh, a different Mercedes, uh, but he was allowed to, to score points, unlike uh, a car that we may reference later mm. on in, in this order. Um, uh, that was then voluntarily outlawed by Mercedes. But it didn't really matter by that point because the Mercedes was now a well enough sorted car that only sort of a freak occurrence such as mm. the one that happened at Mugello where um, Schneider was wiped out by somebody else's accident was, was going to stop him really from, from clocking up the points. So he beat um, the, the Schnitzer McLaren to, to the title. Um, it didn't race at Le Mans. Um, the consensus was that it would have been too much work to prepare a, a program that was pretty new um, you know, it would have detracted too much from the FIA GT effort to have also simultaneously done a Le Mans program and the budget wasn't in place for that either. Um, Mercedes did then go to Le Mans in, in 98. And it's probably worth saying as well that it won the first two races of, of 98 as well before the new um, CLK LM then wiped the floor with Porsche and the rest of the season. The CLK LM did go to Le Mans. It had engine problems early and, and all the cars retired. Um, but all the sort of key players at Mercedes maintained that it was the right call not to take the the more proven, if you like, CLK GTR because it was so much of a more refined package. And Schneider actually told me that he thought that the problems with the engines in 98 were caused by supplier. And if they'd taken the V12, in the CLK GTR, as opposed to the um, the V8 in the CLK LM, the same problems could very easily have happened anyway. Mm, um, yeah. And the old car never did a 24-hour simultaneous test. So, you know, with hindsight, they believe, you know, it was the right call to take the um, the newer car. So that's why this is, is on the list, because although the, the 98 car was, you know, by pretty much every metric, a better car, it did race at Le Mans, whereas the 97 one didn't. I mean, yeah. we unlike a lot of the cars on this list, we can have a good go at speculating how well it might have done at Le Mans had they taken it in 97. So let's assume that it had finished. And I would suggest a six-litre V12 is probably not a bad starting point for a Le Mans engine. Mm. Uh, and if you have a look at the results in 97, you know, second place was an F1 GTR long tail uh, and that won the GT1 class. Well, we know the Merc could, you know, could beat that. Uh, the 911 GT1 Porsches, the 97 Evo car, battled with and actually had the slight edge over, certainly in the first half of the race, the WSC 95 that actually won. So I think we could uh, reasonably suggest, given that the Mercedes beat the Porsche most of the time during the season, that at very least the Mercs would have been in contention for the race victory, which obviously elevates it up potentially this list. Uh, I mean, I have a little bit of an issue. I feel very mixed about this car because like another car that we'll get to a bit later... It's a little bit of a 
you know, I like rule, mm-hmm. I like loopholes of rules. I'm not overly keen on building a card to rules that don't exist and then arguing that you should be allowed in. I think that's slightly different. Um, so I, I must admit, I watched all of the 1997 FIGT championship. I was me and my dad were transfixed by the, the you know this this championship that had grown out of BPR, but we were very much uh, Steve Soper, JJ Leto. Schnitzer, Longtail, McLaren people. So we were mm. cheering them on all season. I thought Leto and so, but Leto in particular was superb that season. And they got steamrolled by a car that really hadn't been designed to the same set of rules. So uh, I, I, I accept that it, I think this is probably the right place for it. Just misses out on the top three. I think it would have done well at Le Mans. It is a kind of, it is a mega cool car. It did win the World Championship or the FIGT Championship. I, I call it World Championship, but. Uh, so it, 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 it does tick the boxes, but I think it, it's probably fair enough that it misses out on a top three. There's one sort of coda to, you know, how well it could have done at Le Mans, which is assuming that, um, you know, it, it was essentially a sprint car that was never really proven in sort of proper endurance conditions beyond four hours. Um, and it had a few gearbox issues that year that, that maybe would have been exposed. And that's that it was a very bad car for porpoising. Um, uh, compared to the 99 car, which of course, uh, the, the CLR, which was made famous by um, aerial accidents for Mark Webber and Peter Dunbrick, mm. that car in testing never had any of the, you know, problems that would rear their head at Le Mans. Whereas the porpoising that, um, you know, ultimately is, is what caused those those accidents, the, you know, the front lifting off and, and not being able to come back down again. That was a real problem on the 97 car. And Schneider <laughs> very much said that, you know, had that car, the, the, the 97 CLK GTR gone to Le Mans, you know, those problems may have reared their head two years earlier than they mm. actually did. Um, you know, going to Donington, for example, uh, Alessandro Nanini apparently said that he couldn't see the first corner. Um, so bad was the, the, the porpoising because there were no real restrictions on ride heights, splitter heights and, and all those sorts of things. So they really did take things to extreme on, on the aero side. That, that's a, sorry, there's a very good point about that. Actually, that's a problem with the flat bottom cars versus ground effects, wasn't it? Because we saw one of the Porsche 911 GT1s go over at road at Lantra, I want to say, famously. So once the air gets under those noses, you know, they've got no under under floor, yeah, no, no venturis to keep the car on the ground. So once a bit of air gets underneath it, you know, they, they flip them over. It was, it was quite, a, yeah, it was quite a problem for a while. Hmm. All right. Well, before we get into the top two and we'll be rejoined again by Andy Wallace for his verdict on those, what's the number three car? In at number three is the Nissan GTP ZX Turbo. Now, this is the car that I think, you know, <laughs> Nissan's Le Mans history is perhaps patchy might be the, the the phrase. I mean, the less said about 2015, the better. And it's, you know, phrase in, in, in Group C times were maybe highlighted by the pole lap that Mark Blundell had in 1990 with the RC90K. But, you know, come the races, Nissan wasn't really a factor at the end. But you know, four rims of GTP titles for Jeff Brabham between 1988 and 1991 with the ZX Turbo. It was the first car that was properly built by Don Devendorf's Electromotive Organization, which later became Nissan Performance Technology Incorporated or NPTI for short. And, you know, it, it was a real dominant force. It was the first car that 
knocked the Porsche 962 um, off its perch in IMSA. It prompted Jaguar to bring the Turbo XJR10, so it prompted, you know, rivals to really, um, you know, change things up. And it was still a winner in its final season. Yeah, and, and it continued to be a winner into its final year in 1990. It won um, Sebring with a 1-2. Uh, and it was also, I mean, people often forget this, but um, Busby Racing also had a, a customer Nissan, um, which they took second in behind the winning Nis- uh, works MPTI mm. Nissan uh, in Miami. So, you know, any car that, you know, have you have a, a successful customer example as well as a, a works example, I think also... Um, serves to be rated highly of course it, it never raced at the mon because nissan was also um present in group c but within this sort of gtp rule set nissan was for those four seasons the dominant package and is that the reason it didn't race at le mans because they had another another program and it just well we're not going to do two i mean yeah when you have a car that's designed to bespoke group c fuel save regulations i mean that that was the sort of the key difference between the imsa gcp rules and um the group c world sports car championship rules um mm. and you actually had two different car builders effectively because you had mm. you know this mpti organization in in california versus it was sort of lola that was building the cars in europe uh, and they were being operated by david price racing is that right kev yeah i'm really pleased to see this here i think this is a mega car it, you know one over you know remember imsa actually gtp in those days had a great actually still to a certain degree now but particularly then a great mix of long distance races and sprints and i always like i always like it when sports cars have sprint races as well as endurance and mixes it up i think that's quite quite cool and it, it proved itself uh, you know across different circuits different uh, different lengths of races, proper opposition, you know, as, as James was saying, you know, Jaguar, Porsche, you know, Toyota, you know, it was really proper, you know, and the downforce levels of those cars were going up and up and up. I think at one mm. point they started having tyre failures because they were putting so much, uh, so much downforce through the, through the rubber. So an inc- incredible uh, period, really. Does it, does it move the game on in terms of a particular innovation? Probably not, I would say. So, you know, perhaps that it doesn't move the goalposts in quite the same way that one of the cars ahead of it does. And of course, it never had to deal with sort of the sports car of the day, which I would argue was the you know the Sauber C11 or Mercedes C11. But in every other yeah, you know, every other way, it ticks the box. So yeah, I think this is um, I think this is a well placed in third. I mean, the only sort of major victory that it lacks is the Daytona 24 Hours. In every other respect, you know, it won Sebring. It was quick on street tracks on conventional circuits. It was a a very well tuned car that um, also benefited from quite prodigious boost. Um, in one of the reports I was reading from Lime Rock, there was a quote from Martin Brundle who said uh, he, he was on pole uh, or second on the grid, maybe. And he said, I jumped the start by about as much as I thought I could get away with. And I was still overtaken by the Nissan going into turn one. OK, let's get on to our top two of this top 10. We often present the number two and the number one together and particularly this time, because I know you and Kev disagree. So we have our official expert adjudicator, Andy, to, to, to call the number one and the number two. Give us the two cars together, James, and then we'll discuss both, both together. So in second place, I've gone for the Jaguar XJR14, which romped to the 1991 World Sports Car Championship title. Um, And in number one, I've gone for the Maserati MC12 GT1, which won numerous FIA GT championships. It then continued winning into the GT1 World Championship era, uh, and it won the Spa 24 Hours 
um, three times as well. So a, a pretty decent hit rate over several years. And that was, for me, the primary reason putting it above a car that only competed in uh, one season and which arguably by the end of that season had been usurped in competitiveness by um, by Peugeot. But Andy, you drove that car briefly, it must be said, at Le Mans. It didn't race. Tell us about that experience. Well, so everything I told you about the TSO 10, of course, this was one year before. So, so it's the same shock when you drive the car, just how unbelievable it is weighing 750 kilos with all this downforce. But it had um, the first Achilles heel was it was a left hand gear shift, which is very, very unusual. Um, and it was an H pattern left hand gear shift. So even with all the race cars I'd ever driven, so go from Formula Ford upwards, and if the car had a right or a left hand drive seating position, the gear lever is always on the right. So first of all, that's weird, uh, changing gear. If it was sequential, you'd have been fine. Also, it had a very long lever. And it went, of course, all the way down to the floor. So it was kind of up in the air and you couldn't really brace yourself to, to, to properly shift gear. So it was easy to miss gears. That's the first thing. Secondly, it was never designed for Le Mans. The engine, they, they realized would never do 24 hours. But also because of that, there were never any gears manufactured to allow it to go down Le Mans straight at a competitive speed. So we used the Monza top gear, which I believe was just over 200 miles an hour. So even the first lap down the straight, you're in top gear going down the straight and bap, 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 bap on the limiter way before the first chicane. So that's the first issue. And then if you remember in those days, they were going to line up all of the, um, the new 750 kilo cars at the front of the grid, um, regardless of the overall lap times of the qualifying. So Tom had said to me, right, you go out and you qualify this car. Um, make sure you get on pole position. Um, then we'll just run the car for a little bit, retire it, and you'll drive one of the other cars for the rest of the race. That was the plan. So you don't get that many sets of qualifying tyres. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I may have only had one set. It, I could be wrong. Um, anyway, I'm on this qualifying lap, which was an absolute stonker of a lap. There's no question it was going to be there. It was enough. Um, but we were giving away on the straight to Jean-Louis Schlesser and the Mercedes with all the boost. We were giving up, I don't know how many miles an hour on the straight. Uh, of course, we had chicanes, but but still. Um, I got all the way around to the Porsche curves, and it, this was going to be the lap for sure. And then as I get into the corner, and you know how narrow the Porsche curves are, David Jones was in one of the V12 Jaguars right in the middle. And I arrived on him, and I think I was doing something like 50 kilometers an hour faster than him when I caught him. And he tried to kind of get out of the way, but I, he, there's just no space. So I avenged up, I scrabbled around the outside of him, but I lost a massive amount of time, crossed the line, and it was P2 on the grid. And that was my last uh, set of qualifying tires. And I don't think it was very much, was it? It was just a few tenths of a second, but it was P2. So it was lost there. So I... At the end, Tom wasn't very happy and I explained what happened to him and he was, you know, walking around with a sore head. And then because of that, he said, well, we're not going to run the car then. And that's kind of how it, how it went. And I kind of got the blame for it. But I think in the end, I mean, Tom knows how these things are and he likes to to cheer you off. But I mean, he he knew exactly what happened. They've got the data from both cars. So that was that. But in terms of what it was it like to drive? Yeah, mega. Apart from you can't change gear, it was mega. Gutting that it was one of your team cars that 
that got in the way. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, it was the same for David. He was trying to get a qualifying lap. You know, he he, he was on a lap, and so I didn't expect him to to drive off the track for me. And, and of course he wouldn't have known that this was my only lap. These things happen, don't they? But And, and Kev, I know that you disagree with this top two order. Why is that? I've spoken to David Brabham and Derek Warwick about, about this car. And they, but they, well, actually I asked them what their favorite racing car was and they both picked the XJR 14. I think it was a complete game changer as well. Like the Peugeot 905 wouldn't have been the car that it was without the XJR 14 and Ross Braun. I mean, moving mm. the goalpost, it, it moved it out the pitch really. I mean, they were two and a half seconds clear at Suzuka. I was at Silverstone in 91 and it was, you know, Terry Farby, I think, was almost midfield F1 lap times for the first few laps and then just rolled it off while Martin Brundle charged through the field after a delay. Uh, the car was just epic. And it was my main beef, I suppose, uh, versus the MC12 is that the XGR14 was built to rules that existed and done and, and and that was done very well. The MC12 was a bit of a cheat car, not even really in a loophole way. It was well, we've built it. It's based on a Ferrari Enzo with a different nose, Maserati badge chucked on it, and it was up against all you know a GT car. should have the engine in the front and rear wheel drive, unless you're a Porsche 911. And this mid-engine thing came along, which to me is a sports prototype. And surprisingly, it whipped all the whipped all the proper GT cars for several years. Uh, so I, I struggled to get too excited about the Maserati in terms of success. James is absolutely right; like it lasted a long time, won multiple championships. So I, I would suggest that the the Michael Bartles Vitaphone team was probably the best team in the championship as well. And I think their strategy calls and their preparation was probably top notch. And I think they would have been winning races whichever car they were running. To be honest. Um, so I think that factored in. But the XGR14 to me just has so much more X factor. Like I know we you have to bring that in. Like the purple silk cut livery was cool. It looked amazing. It completely rewrote the rule book in sports cars, whereas the, the MC12 tried to ignore it. So that's why I would uh, that's why I would swap these two cars around every day of the week, I think. But Although, it's not your list. It's it's James's list though. So <laughs> the the MC12 also has, you know, the claim to being the car that is to blame for balance of performance. You know, we often talk about what impact these cars had. And I don't think the MC12's impact can only be positioned in terms of success because, you know, it it was built around rules that then were cancelled and Maserati got so far along in the the process, there was maybe a little bit of political pressure exerted on Stefan Mattel to accept the car on behalf of Ferrari Um and, and and Max Mosley as, as well as as the president of the FIA, um, and it was so far superior that it it had to be you know dramatically trimmed before it was allowed to score championship points, and the only championship I think it didn't win in two thousand and five um, was pretty much as a cause of drastic weight penalties, ride height increases that allowed the Labra five fifty Marinello to win the title, um, and you know that is pretty much the, the dawn of BOP that we know and insert adjective love <laughs> well, knows today. Well, well, we, you know, we normally do, if, if a car forces a rule change, I think we talked about this in the top 10 Le Mans cars, didn't we, with the Audi R8 and the gearbox, the Porsche 917 being outlaws, you know, that's normally a bonus. So I'd normally agree with you, but on the basis that it arguably shouldn't have been there in the first place, that's <laughs> so it kind of almost neutralises it, it, it out. But I mean, obviously it was very successful. On the XJR14, I think we should probably just add, remember it did go over to IMSA in 92, win some races with Davy Jones. It probably should have won more. I think they had some problems 
uh, sorting it out over the more bumpy circuits. And I think it was just a factor of the fact that it wasn't developed, wasn't it? it really? Exactly. Yeah, the Jaguar didn't even have the money to develop it in '91, which is one of the reasons why the Peugeot and Mercedes caught them up during the course of the season. And also, is that I mean, this is why it's such a cool car as well. It does form the basis of a car that not only went on to race at Le Mans but win it twice with the WSC 95. You know, that is uh, that's uh, oh, what have we we've got this Porsche engine. We need to put it in something. Oh, well, there's a there's that jag in the corner of the factory. Let's take that and cut the roof off and whatever. And oh, it's that was quite effective. So, for me, the the jag story. I, I will admit to being biased because I was a kid when that car came out, and it was one of the cars that sold me on motor racing. If I'm honest, so there is definitely some subjectivity creeping in. Uh, but everyone ever spoken to who was involved in that project just thought that the thing was epic. And uh, this, it was to me. This debate is going to run and run, but we have to stop it here. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today to give us your, your personal insights into these amazing machines. I just want to finish off by asking you, what's it like for you uh, when you decided to, to finally call it a day and competing at the top tier? of racing what's it like for you now when you see the event do you get those pangs of i wish i was still doing it or are you happy to let the other guys do it um i I'm, i don't wish i was still doing it because it a 24-hour race hurts i can i can tell you that because i've done multiple <laughs> um so that's the first thing and also i think the enjoyment from that race comes from being competitive and mm. you know so you would have to be in a in a front running car and then somebody in their 60s in a front one running car would probably get quite embarrassed so so um <laughs> yeah so i don't miss it from that side i love the spectacle i i think it's absolutely fantastic i have to say i think the hypercar route when it first was announced i think was completely the wrong way every time we've gone away from prototypes it's been a bad idea but it looks like i was totally wrong and not for the first time in my life because we do have a lot of manufacturers um let's hope that it continues to grow and um yeah it's it's still an amazing the track's amazing the race is amazing and luckily the the sport is amazing so in there your we go. 60s never not a day over 25 like i said at the beginning uh andy thank you so much uh, for joining us today that's our podcast for today uh, make sure you're subscribed to the, the the podcast for lots more episodes not just about the month obviously uh, but uh, about all uh, of the different series that we cover and we will catch you on the next one thanks for listening
Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.